Today we welcome Roger Q. Mason. He's a playwright, a screenwriter, a producer, and a director. He does film and he does theater, and we have a very lively chat. Here's Roger. Hi, Roger. Welcome to the show. Hi, Sherry. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? Oh, my God, Sherry. I have to tell you, the weather needs to decide what it wants because... <laughs> It's raining one minute, then it's 75 degrees, then it's like winter. I mean, what what are we doing? It's 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 a very tumultuous moment of transition, both in the air and also, you know, on Capitol Hill. <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, we're we're just we're just doing all the transitions all at once. So I I can. Uh, I, I, all we can do is just sit and and enjoy uh, a, a couple of cookies and hot cocoa and keep it moving because that's pretty much what we got at this point. The last time there was um, a hearing like this, I was a little girl and I was getting mad because it was interrupting my cartoons and my my repeat shows that I used to watch. <laughs> right. I mean, I, I, I can't even sit watching. <laughs> You know, I mean, I, I, if I sat and got sucked into MSNBC or, or CNN, I would never leave my, I would never leave my, my, my television. So I just, you know, you read what you need to, you get the gist of what's going on, you get your little updates, and then you keep going uh, about your own way because that's all we can do. You know, is the the, the rest of the rest of the world may be going crazy, but as long as we can keep our little fiefdoms somewhat sane, we've pretty much done a damn good job. That's how I'm looking at this. Yeah, that's true. And that's what I do too. I don't I don't watch it. Uh it's just it, it, it's too much. And it's I rather much. just read the bits and bobs and see what's going on yeah. and that's it. You know, I I, I don't want to get involved. <laughs> I exactly. We don't want to get involved because once you go down that rabbit hole of getting involved, then it consumes you, you know. And you know, I'm I'm watching I'm watching this show right now um called The Sinner. I'm watching it on I don't I think it's originally on USA Network, but um it's uh it's now on Netflix or something. And I'm watching season three, which is the the Matt Bomber season, and there there's a it's it's sort of it's following a certain philosophical premise. I think it's a Nietzsche premise. I'm not I'm not really exactly sure because they explained all of it in some very artfully done exposition <laughs> in episode five. Very well played. Uh, exposition on that because it was investigative, you know. So the best way to hide exposition is is uh, in a in a murder mystery, you know, because you can yeah. get away with it because you've got to ask the question so we know. So it's very well done. Yeah. And uh, the the notion that uh, that sort of left the scene was uh, the theory of search of looking into the abyss, and that you can look into the abyss for the answers to life's mystery, to find fulfillment. But then at a certain point, if you look far enough down the abyss, the abyss will look back at you. <laughs> <laughs> That's really yeah, true. So that is true. I, I mean, you get you get sucked in. It's one of the reasons that I, I I use social media for my advertising, and I have I know to catch up on with friends and stuff like that. But I'm very selective about the amount of time I use it because you get sucked right in. <laughs> oh, you, but I mean, it's designed that way. It's completely designed to get you to opt in 
and join a particular channel of, of thought production. And in doing so, become a part of that culture and contribute to it, not only by passively consuming it, but also by continuing to propagate its ideas and values. And I'm not talking on any side of the political spectrum on this. I'm literally just saying this is how information is disseminated now, and this is how social media and the algorithms are charting and forming and framing our thoughts. And if you think about it, we end up becoming parts of self-selecting groups of idea makers. Because depending on who thing we like, I try to avoid, Roger, I'm know? completely trying to, I am, I am, I'm trying to avoid it. I'd rather go into, like, I have, I belong to groups, but it's like TV show groups, like, um, yeah. or Frankie Drake or, um, Athena. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I try really hard not to get into any of that stuff because it's like too scary. <laughs> It's too much, and the thing about it, too, is where does it leave time for us to form our own thoughts and make exactly. our own and create our own opinions? You know, that's why I think you read you, you read the tidbits and you look at the things, but then ultimately you have to depend on yourself and, and on your own ideals to guide what decisions you make and what thoughts you have because mm-hmm. you are your own person. You know, I, it's funny. And, and I think, I, I think about, um, what happened to people and their relationship to place and space after the invention of even, uh, remember that navigation device that we used to, I mean, now it seems like a million years ago, the box. That was basically like a little satellite, and and you'd go in taxis. I'm taking us back to the taxi days, okay? And they mm-hmm. had that box, like you'd type in the address, that huge clunky screen, and then it would speak to you in this robotic voice. I think at that very moment, where we stopped reading maps and actually having to engage physically and actively in who we are and where we are and how do we get into and out of places, we developed a passive and receptive relationship to direction, and not yes, just sure. physical direction, but I think philosophical direction. What does it mean to not be an active participant in your own direction-making and decision-making to just say, oh, well, the app told me to go here. Well, what if the app told you to jump off a fucking cliff? Yeah, I agree with that. It's it's scary. No, I would would never go with uh, it. I'm an independent thinker. I was taught very young. I don't follow the little path. (laughs) No, it's scary to think, but, but think about, just look at driving, right? People are just, oh, just put it in the app. I don't want to think about it. I'll just do, I'll just listen to what it prompts me. But how does that passive relationship to direction affect your other function? It must have some sort of broader neurochemical effect on you because you are learning to respond to decision-making in a different way in one aspect of your life, how does that affect the way you relate to other aspects of your life? So I'll say to some of these drivers, think, don't listen to that. Why drive through this construction zone anyway and have us both choke to death on this damn construction zone? Let's turn here and then go back around. I mean, just this simple kind of relationship to your life. Your life. That's true. It's just, that's true. Oh my. I, and, and I mean, I, out, when I was when I was a little girl, my dad used to um, he used on Sundays he he used to say, mm-hmm. "Okay, everybody, we're going to go get lost," and we pile into the car. We had no idea where he was going. He had no idea where he was going, and he just drives just to have fun. I mean, Powerful. that's where my thinking flows. <laughs> that's 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 absolutely powerful because. Sometimes you need to just allow yourself to get lost to find out who you are and what you're made of. And, and you know, the funny thing is that's how that's how I found myself as an artist was I spent the last 10 to 15 years allowing myself to get lost, allowing myself to get lost sometimes intentionally and sometimes unintentionally and sometimes lostness was imposed on me 
and I had to accept it. And in accepting it, find a way to find myself and the process of finding myself, not the outcome, but the process of finding myself is how I developed my voice and my instinct. And I wouldn't trade that self-discovery for anything in the world. I wouldn't trade it for a thing because now I know how my instrument works and who I am and why I do what I do and how I do it. And that is priceless. Yeah, that is priceless. I think that's one of the things I don't like about what's happening in the world right now. Everybody seems to be following voices in a box, like you said, called a TV or a a laptop or whatever device you're watching. And they don't read. They don't, yeah. uh, they don't, I mean, how many times when we were allowed to, did you go to a restaurant or a, um, or a, shop, a coffee shop and you saw people sitting with each other and they were all staring into their phones and no one was really communicating? I always got really upset when I saw that. You see it all the time. And the thing is, because we're socially distant now and people are accustomed to either you know, texting people or or messaging or maybe FaceTiming for shorter periods of time. I think the when we come out of this, the way that face-to-face communication will, it'll either become one of two things. It'll either become a novelty and something that people crave because they've been so deprived of react, interaction, or it'll become something that people are absolutely mortified by and don't want to do. And for those, I'm hoping it's. Have, I, I hope I, it's the one about craving. I really do. I hope people are craving. Oh, it. It, look, it's going to be split. There's going to be enough people who were reclusive already that are going to use this moment as justification for going into, you know, anonymity. That we know that. And then there's going to be all of us that love interaction who are going to say, oh, my God, I need to see everybody. And I mean literally everyone all at once, you know, and they're going to be craving it. So I think it'll go, I think it'll go both ways, you know. I think it'll go both ways. I kind of, I, 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 I really miss, like, going to the theater or a museum, you know, <laughs> or even a movie. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I mean... I have to tell you though, I um I'm kind of learning to love in a way streaming cuz what I've decided at this point is like I want to try new things. Uh you know, I want to watch new things because as someone who's, you know, transitioning from theater into TV film work, I want to know what the conversations are. Uh you know, in the medium that I'm seeking to join. And so I'll just watch something. I'll just choose something every night and I'll just watch it. You know, sometimes it's planned. Sometimes it's something that I've wanted to see for a while and sometimes not. And just the exercise of sitting down and enjoying it and consuming it privately and, you know, in in the comfort of my own room, there's something really interesting about that for me because I get to experience things in terms of visual storytelling in a way that I feel – I can't necessarily experience it in the same way um, going to the movie theater because there's so many other distractions. There's the bathroom. There's the popcorn. There's more butter. There's people talking and coming late. There are all these other pageants that are part of the public experience. So, But I also feel like those are important because those are what make the movies the movies. You know, certainly being crunched up in a lobby and 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 buying twenty dollar gin drinks between acts at the theater is part of the experience of the show, especially if it's your own and no one knows you. You're sitting there as a writer of the show in a corner listening to people chat about. <laughs> I don't watch my own play. I can't. I can't be in the audience watching. You know what I do when I when I write a show. Uh, for the theater, I'll sit like everyone knows. I've got my own little corner in the in the dressing room, and I'll just sit and I'll listen to the play. And I can tell by the energy in the room how it's going. But oh, don't ask me to sit in the theater. I think that has changed for me too, because that goes along with 
knowing your instrument and and being able to accept with grace and 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 with constructivism this is a snapshot a snapshot of where this play is at this time i'm using this production to learn things about the work and from this production if it needs to grow and change and evolve i have the time to do that so long as i am above ground and thinking and breathing i can always change and i can always grow and improve i i stay believing those ideas and that's what sustains me all of this time because i've always been dedicated to trying something new that's what i was saying on a phone call with a friend of mine this morning when i was taking my walk i said you know what, what excites me about myself now is i'm learning that i never rest I'm always reaching. I'm always trying to get the next thing, the next idea. Because if we don't continue to reach and grow, then we're not really using our instrument to its fullest potential. And it's you're also not living. And you're not living. And the fullest potential of an instrument is to know that if growth is never done, that there's always something more. That's the fullest potential. You never reach it. If you think you've reached it, then you're dead. Because we're never done learning. As long as we're living, we're always gaining information, ideas, and knowledge, and we're growing. That's what I believe. Um, I agree with that. I think it's really interesting because um, one of the things that makes it interesting to uh, talk to all different kinds of people is that everybody has their own way of um, following their path to doing what they're doing. Now, you were a theater writer. Were, how did you get into that? Did you Were you... Um, were you an actor, or were you always? A, uh, did you always write uh, plays, or yeah. how did that? Start? You know, it, it, it's interesting because I feel like you're very psychic. You could tell, you could tell that the performer in me never died. <laughs> you know, you could tell, you could tell that the the little actor singer in me that was so interested in being heard and clapped upon as a child, never died. And and you're absolutely right. You know, my story is is, is one of 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 compromise and appeasement. You know, I, I until I until it wasn't. Until it wasn't. You know, I, I grew up here in Los Angeles and I I was uh, I, I was the, the child of, of a black and Irish dad, Filipino mother. Uh I wouldn't call our home conservative, but I would call it somewhat myopic in terms of its definitions of social roles. And growing up, I was, all I wanted to do was sing the blues. I just wanted to be a blues singer. That's what I wanted to do. And, um, you know, at my high school, middle and high school, it was, it was run at the time by a gentleman who had experience on Broadway and had come back to education later on. And we had the, these programs called Midday Cabarets. I'll never forget. Basically, at lunchtime, we'd, we'd put on 30-minute cabaret shows once a week or a couple times a month. And, oh, I used to love that. And I used to love not only watching them, but also being in them. And then I would audition for the musicals and the plays. And every time I would, of course, I'd get the part, Sherry, because, you know, I'm me. And every time <laughs> I, I'd get the part, I'd, I'd go so far as to the first rehearsal. And then my dad would come in and he'd say, Roger's not doing this play. And he'd take me off the stage. And it happened every single time. And the reasoning was that he was very concerned that I would become what at the time was called a sissy-ass artist. You know, there was a lot of gender policing in the 90s. Uh, they weren't the gay 90s that we want to romanticize them to be, you know, with all oh, will and grace and queer as folk and all this. No, honey. It was very, very restricting time. It was a time of don't ask, don't tell, too, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, I was very much a victim of that time. Because I felt like my wings were clipped. 
Because had I been allowed to uh, blossom into that performer early on, I could have avoided about 20 years of trauma and self-doubt and self-hate and self-censoring that I had to dedicate the next two decades to overcome. And what happened over the next two decades is quite simply, I evolved back to the unabashed, brave, and free version of myself at 12, who got up there and used to just sing. And now I sing on the page. Because along the way, I discovered writing and I discovered directing because at first, they were polite, art administrative, respectable places in the eyes of the family. I could be a, a gentleman of letters through the place of the writer or the director. Those were respectable places. But being an actor, that was a, not a respectable place, you know, the actor. Isn't it weird but, that in the 20th century, in the 21st century, Actors are still put into that position. It's ridiculous. It's still put. It's still criminalized. It's still criminalized. Still exoticized. Still, uh, you know, completely just, you know. I, I mean, it's it, it's really awful. It's like ostracized. They're still seen as this source of sin because they are the source of fantasy. They're a source of fantasy, and, and fantasy is frightening when you live in a society that has such strictures and rules about it, because fantasy shows you your truth. Fantasy shows you who you wish you could be if society were not policing you. That's true. And in, I mean, and I think one of the reasons kid. that we love movies is that we learn from them. We learn who we really are. We learn that we are just as weird and just as sinful and just as murderous and just as gluttonous and just as lustful and just as in love and just as dreaming as we are when nobody's looking. When we're sitting by ourselves in the imaginative orb of our thoughts with nobody stopping us, we learn in that moment who we really are. And that's the power of movies. But what if you could live that truth all the time, every day? Now, I'm not saying, what if you could live in a movie? That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying <laughs> is, what if, you could, what if you could live in your most authentic and uncensored, unabashed, unashamed self every day? What if you could have that? What would you be then? My God, you would be powerful. You yeah. would be stoppable because there's one thing that I have learned over the last 15 years. And you know what that is? It's I already knew at 12 when I was sitting there singing, swishing my hips, being every bit the sissy-ass artist that no one wanted me to be. I already knew who I was going to be in my 30s. I was already there, and it took the next 20-some years to get back to that place of embracing who that person was. Yeah. Because it's, weird. Time, it's like we take, uh, I'm sorry, I was going to say, it's like we take several steps backwards in order to go forward. It's like it's a constant, like, back and forth. Yeah, and, and, and the steps the step backwards that we take are not our own. They are society's. Oh, yeah, definitely. But, I mean, it's people who try to stop you from expressing yourself in whatever way you want to express yourself that mess you up. Absolutely. And so you you spend your adolescence and your early adulthood trying to get back to a place of authenticity where you can just function, you know. And some people make it through that hurdle. Some people don't, and some people get tragically lost along the way. Some people get caught up in lives they never wanted to live somewhere along the way. I'm glad I got free. Yeah. You know? Yeah, thank God. I'm glad I got free because Sherry 
if I had done what other people wanted me to do, or I had been who other people wanted me to be, we wouldn't be talking. That's true. You know, there would be nothing for me to say because I would be holed up in some, you know, profession of respectability, wasting away, probably punctuated by a whiskey bottle. many people or if they some of them I, I you know I can't speak for all artists but some of us get a chance to live the lives that many wish they could live you know whenever I say to people people ask me oh, what do you do you know when I'm just in an uber or whatever oh I'm a writer I'm a performer they just light up in an almost childlike way oh my god it's like they're seeing uh, a clown at a, a birthday and they're two it's otherworldly, something, some part of their psyche, some aspect of a life they had to leave behind has been lit up once again to be happy. They get to be so happy. Like, or, it's sort of like the movie Field of Dreams. <laughs> if you build yeah. it, they will come. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I mean, it's just, it's just amazing the the, the, the power we uh, we're in almost the the ambassador the spiritual ambassadorship business we are ambassadors of the spirit that's what we're doing as 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 artists you know I and think, i was going to say i think it's showing more now i think people are actually realizing how important the arts and entertainment field is i'm an author i know that i've been getting people uh, note more notes about, and more of my books are selling because people are wanting to read, and people are wanting to watch movies, and people are wanting to watch TV shows. I mean, they're bored because we're <laughs> because we're bored, but also we're down and out, and we're hopeless. We are in an endless purgatory, and we're looking for hope, and that's what artists always have provided to the human spirit is hope. Mm-hmm. Some way Absolutely. If not, if not in reality, then some kind of spiritual transcendence, some way of transcending my current moment through my imagination, even if it's fleeting for that hour or that two hours or two weeks that I'm wrapped up reading a book or binging a show, I got to feel that I am somewhere else and somebody else in my dismal existence, which is going and droning on endlessly with no end or relief or hope in sight. For those moments, I was able to find joy. That's the power of what we that's the power of who we are, and that's the power of our function. And, you know, when when you're in a society that doesn't always value the art, it's saddening because I think we are an essential business because mm-hmm. if, or if, if people are ill of spirit, people don't know where they've been or have some way of dreaming forward. They're dead. It's exactly what we said at the beginning of this conversation because, you know, what I was watching uh, the little documentary series on the brain that is, mm-hmm. uh, I think it's uh, being narrated by Emma Stone. And um, this particular episode was about memory. And the show was trying to query why is memory so important to human survival if it is subjective and emotional and it's faulty? What purpose does it actually serve? And so they uh, had a, a, a study. I forget which uh, neuroscientific institute it was, but they had done a brain scan study where they had asked patients to recall certain events in their lives. And particular chambers of their brain were ignited electrochemically. And then they asked 
the same people to recall what would have happened next, the future, after that event. And the same neurochemical chambers were ignited. And so the theory was positive that the same parts of the brain that are involved with forming memory are also key to forming our imagination of the future. In other words, we remember things so that we can imagine how our future will be. Our future is dependent neurochemically on how we remember the past. And for me, that revelation, thank you, Emma Stone and writers of the documentary, it completely justified and revolutionized how I write and why I write, because I do a lot of historical revisionist work. And my work as a writer is very much centered on how do I use the past as a way of dreaming culture forward? How do we revise our relationship to the past in order to imagine a better, more equitable, and less biased future? And so this little tidbit that literally on a biological level, my work is in sync with how the brain actually functions, suddenly I realized, well, hell, I'm in line with what we are supposed to be doing and how we're hardwired to imagine change anyway. Wow. And I didn't even know that. And I wasn't even a brain surgeon, but I could just feel it. <laughs> I could just. <laughs> so maybe I am doing a kind of brain surgery too, Sherry. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I should like that too. It was a different documentary, but it was basically the same thing. It's just, it's interesting that if you don't use a part of the brain, it will stop. It just because yeah. like you, if you're like you're moved over, you're not doing something that you usually did, and it's just you kind of stopped using it. It'll just it'll give that part of your brain to something that you are doing. It, it, right. The brain is so complex and interesting. Yeah, I mean, and and if you think about it. Going back to what we were saying earlier, how many people aren't using certain lobes of their brain actively? And how fast are those lobes atrophying, especially right now? Yeah. Yeah. Especially. That's scary, though, if you think about it. It's sort of scary. Oh, pregnant. <laughs> Oh, okay. No, I was I was just going to um we're gonna switch subjects a little bit. Um Oh yeah. I I had the pleasure of talking to one of the people from one of your work, uh one of your works, uh Felicia, about Breathe. Yeah. Can you tell me how that came about and what the concept was? Did it start the way it did and all that? Yeah. Well I so I did not write Breathe. I directed Breathe, and I developed Breathe as a show with Felicia, who uh, was the writer and performer. Felicia Saunders was the writer and performer of that piece. And right, but you worked together about, on it, right? It was the it yeah, was the, worked, yeah. We worked very we worked very closely together on that piece because the way that it started was this: about a year and a half ago. In, in, in the wee days before Corona, I had just returned to Los Angeles from New York, where I was uh, living for, I was there for about six months. I had three projects going on, uh, different off-Broadway showings, and, and uh, I was really on a roll. And then I came back to L.A. because I had a couple of things going on here. And I met with Felicia and her mother because they wanted me to direct Felicia in a revival of another person's solo show. There were a couple of candidates. They were looking to introduce Felicia to the Los Angeles theater market as a writer-performer because she was in transition. She had had some, some nice success in film and TV, but really wanted to strike out on her own. So she was looking for a showcase of her talent uh, as a solo performer, because that's one of her specialties. So we looked at works by Charlene Woodard and works by Charlene and uh, Anna DeVere Smith were two of the ones that I know about. 
And I said, well, that's lovely. And, you know, I, I think you'll get some nice interest in you as an interpreter of somebody else's work. But do you have a story that you could tell? And she said, oh, no, I'm, I'm an actor. I want to be an actor. I said, okay, well, think about it, because I think that both from a professional uh, standpoint, in terms of your goal, trying to establish yourself in L.A., but also from an artistic standpoint, uh, you might find it more fulfilling to develop a piece of material that speaks from your perspective, because everything is branding now. I said it from that perspective too, a little a little mercenary perspective. I said, look, you do a nice interpretation of somebody else's play, you'll get a couple of write-ups and people will pat you on the back and that's fine. But you tell your own story and invite people into your own lived experience, especially in today's political climate, you'll make some moves. So she came back a couple of weeks later. And she said, oh, you know, I have something, but oh, it'll never work. I said, what is it? And she said that she had a short play about a civil rights leader um, named uh, Sweet Alice Harris that she did as part of her MFA uh, training at UCLA. And she had to write a solo show about this person. And so she said, well, I, I wrote the piece. But I, I want to share. I said, "Well, where is it?" And she didn't want to show it to me first. <laughs> she said, "Well, let, she said, well, let, let me uh, let me send you the uh, the interview." And she sent me the audio of, of of this woman, and I said, "Oh, this lady is captivating as hell." So originally, the piece was going to be her playing this woman, and. We were wondering, well, is it just the 60s or is it a whole, you know, a whole lot of different parts of her life? Is it a biopic? What are we doing? And then as we were talking, Felicia started interjecting different personal connections and inroads to why different things that this lady was saying and different aspects of the woman's story would relate to her own. And I said, well, it seems as though this lady's life aligned itself really dynamically with your own journey towards self-discovery. And she said, yeah. I said, well, what, what, if this, what if this piece evolves and what if it's about your interaction with this woman? So then, you know, then we started having all these uh, race rebellions again this past year. Right. And almost like a light lightning rod. The play just took off because all of this outpouring of micro and macro aggression that have really formed Felicia's life as a professional young woman trying to make it in various industries, make it in school, make it as an actor, and all the ways in which her color or perceptions of her color stopped her along the way from succeeding or reaching her fullest potential, it really became quite evident and quite real that she was a victim of systemic racism in our country, that the racism of our country had stymied her professional and personal growth, and that she was looking to this woman Sweet Alice, as a kind of guiding light and mentor, but that the real story was not Alice's, but rather Felicia's coming into herself using Alice as a possibility model. Now, here's where I come into play, because as a playwright primarily, I was very interested in how do I help this young woman, this was her first play, how do I help her structure this event? Not just as a director, but really as a script advisor. So that's why we say developed with Roger Q. Mason, because in addition to directing or interpreting the work in its production form, I was also part of the conversation to help form the narrative. Now, she also had a brilliant dramaturg whose name is Dylan Southern, and he did a lot of the hands-on work. He did most of the hands-on work. They brought me in every now and then to try and 
provoke new thoughts because you know I'm a bit of a hell a hellraiser. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you you come up with a whole lot of stuff and it's all going to be brilliant. Now let me come in and, and kind of just knock at this and knock at that real quick and, and and provoke some some thoughts that nobody has thought about yet. And and that's probably where I'm best suited, you know, and and best able to help because you need that second set of eyes to come into the room. Uh, to really show you what you may have missed. Because when we're writing a play, we lose our objectivity very quickly. Because we, if we're doing our jobs, we get wrapped up and lost in the music of the work. If we're doing our jobs. But, that makes sense, though. It does. That you yeah. get wrapped. I always do when I'm working on a book. Sometimes I get yeah. I drive in the wrong direction when I'm thinking about a book. Yeah, I'll bring you back or or say no. I love this new direction. Now, how can you grow this? You know, one of the things that's interesting, especially when you're working with with emerging writers, is a lot of your work is just encouraging them to trust their instincts because. So much of, of of what stops us from writing is distrust. We don't trust ourselves. We don't trust what we naturally would have said, you know. For whatever reason, we censor ourselves. And a lot of the work of a good a good script editor or, or a development um, consultant or, or dramaturg is to just help the writer come back to that fiery truth that started them on the journey to begin with. You already knew. You know, going back to me, I already knew at 12 when I was just trying to sing the blues. It took 25 years to get to a place where I could come back to what I already knew. God bless. Lord have mercy. I was already there. You mean I wasted time? No, I didn't waste any time. Why? Because now it's, now, as Shakespeare says, now it is engendered. Can't take it away now. I know who I am, and I have 25 years of emotional evidence to back it up. <laughs> ah. That's true. I love that. I think that's powerful yeah. and good. You know, so, so that's the story. That's the story of how I came to be involved with uh, with Felicia's show. Um, was it, it started off as a project where they wanted me to just direct her doing another solo show, and and what emerged was. Uh, you know, a writer-performer relationship. That's cool. Um, do you have projects that you're working on now? Anything that's coming out? Anything you would like to oh, tell the audience yes. about? Yes, I have. I have a couple of things that are that are coming up. Let me see what I can talk about and what I can't talk about. Okay, <laughs> so I, you know, well, first of all, what I will say is. Very soon, fingers crossed, I'm I, I'm making a, a, a lovely leap into the TV film world, and and so I'm very excited to be exploring uh, the realms of uh, of uh, television, particularly um, drama and also animation. Those are two things that I'm that I'm exploring right now. Um, in addition to that, my from my theater work standpoint, I have a new commission uh, with Celebration Theater which is going to discuss queer intimacy in the pandemic. Uh, it's a series of short a short pieces that we're going to do, which are going to be a little racy, I think, because we're going to probably be on that slightly pornographic site called OnlyFans. Um, I've got a really exciting long-term commission with Leviathan Lab in New York for a play called Waiting for a Wake, which is sort of the black and Filipino American answer to um, long day's journey into night. Um, and I'm starting that this month and then it'll be a long-term development. We'll have a showing of that. We're trying to use it as a fundraiser for um, Amer- uh, Asian American theaters around the country uh, that are still in the pandemic trying to develop work uh, by young artists. Uh, in addition to that, I have a commission with Courage Theater here in Los Angeles, um, which is uh, a devised theater work about the failure of the healthcare system. <laughs> so we'll be talking about that. And then I'm running, uh, I'm the mentor for a really exciting new initiative with the Dramatist Guild and the National Queer Theater called New Vision Fellowship. I'll be the mentor to 
two trans and gender non-conforming uh, black playwrights who are at the earliest stages of their careers and are looking for mentorship, not only artistically, but also professionally. And how do they navigate this business, which is not always centering on the types and visions of inclusion that make space for black, trans, gender non-binary ideas. So this is a national, um, a national fellowship that I will be serving as the lead mentor on. We also will be having workshops with some of the best and brightest uh, of queer writers and thought leaders around the country. So that is actually accepting applications now. I think we're accepting them through, certainly through the end of February and part of March. So for anybody that's listening to this episode who identifies as transgender or gender nonconforming, uh, please apply. It's uh, national, just search National Queer Theater uh, on Google and the application is up there. And if, if you have any doubts, it's my face with a purple background. <laughs> find me on those. 
coming up that I can discuss right now, I know that the alumni spotlight of my work um, with the Fire This Time Festival, of which I'm a very proud alum uh, in New York, the Fire This Time Festival, people should know about this. Um, the Fire This Time Festival is an incubator off-Broadway for emerging black talent. Um, Tori Hall, Dominique Morris, so many, many other folks have come through this program, and I'm one of their alums. They did a tribute, and it was called the Alumni Spotlight, works that I had written while I was in residency there and then shortly thereafter. It did very well in November, and I believe they're reprising it in the spring. Um, that's coming up. And then I also know that in October, we're going to have a big showing of my new play, Waiting for a Wake, with Leviathan Theater in partnership with a couple other big theaters around the country. There are some things that will be happening in the late spring and early summer, so watch out for those. Those dates and details are being formulated also the Celebration Theater Commission on OnlyFans will probably come out in the spring. So just look out on the social medias for all of those different, all those different details. There's a lot coming at folks and there's a lot even more than preparing for next year. So it's, it's a busy time and I'm very grateful. Thank you for coming on the show. <laughs> oh, thanks so much. And, and I hope that, that your listeners will enjoy it. And thank you so much for having me. Thank you, and thank you for okay. chatting with Terry. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.